You're listening to Bell, Book, and Candle with Mela Borowski. Thoughts from a Southern Witch. Should have studied witchcraft. Should have learned to ride a broom. So me and my black cat could fly through the skies underneath the moon. Hey y'all, it's Mela Borowski. Thanks for listening to Bell, Book, and Candle. I tell people all the time that there will always be someone who has it better than you and someone who has it worse than you, regardless of where you are in your life. I felt the need to share my story for years now, but I wasn't sure how to go about doing that until now. I think it's important because every time I've shared parts of my life story with my friends or my clients or in groups or trainings, it seems to create a glue And that allows what I have to teach to stick a little bit better. As one of my clients put it, she comes to me because she knows I walk the talk. I've been in the abyss and I have climbed out. So I'm going to share my story here today on this episode, not to hurt anyone, not to be a sensationalist and not to draw pity or concern. Because my story has a wonderful, miraculous ending. I tell you this story so that wherever you are on your own journey, you can have hope and you can know that there can be healing. So I'm going to start at the very beginning, before I was even born. I'm going to start with my mother. And instead of me telling the story of how I came into this world, I'm going to let her tell it. My mom's story starts when she was a little girl. She was being molested by her father prior to age 11. And she knew her mom knew because her father was talking to a stranger saying that he wished that he had a fine young girl too. And her mom got mad and told her father after the man left not to be talking about it. And it wasn't until she was older that she understood the terms that were used and knew that her mom knew about the molestation. And her father made her feel like it was her fault too. And because of all this years of abuse and being molested, my mom felt like no one would protect her, that no one was listening to her. And the people in her family who knew what was going on in her life did nothing about it. And so she had shut down and given up on anyone hearing her plea for help. So, Mom, how does my story start? There was an older relative that came to visit us once we moved away from Georgia and we were living in Florida. And I guess that was Mom's only way to get us away from my dad. And he invited me and my younger brother to the movies. And I never knew that, you know, he he never tried anything when I was young or anything. So I thought, oh yeah, that sounds fun going to the movies. My younger brother fell asleep in the back of the car. And then my, uh, the relatives started messing with me and I kept saying no and kept pushing him away. And he kept on and on until my old, way of just shutting down and letting people do whatever they wanted to happen. And so 
When I went home, I knew there was no reason to tell my mom or anyone what had happened. So you just carried the secret with you? Yes. And so when I found out I was pregnant, I knew I was pregnant uh, when I didn't have periods. And I even told him when I saw him again, he was just there visiting. And he said, there's no way it could have been mine. It's one of those boys you went out with. And I said, I ain't been with any boys. But I didn't know then that he knew I wasn't a virgin because of my dad. So I was pregnant going to school. I was in the uh, last half of the 11th grade, went through the summer, went back to school in the 12th grade. And no one noticed any changes. And um, Pamela was born on December 4th. And, I, and so I was out of school for the two weeks before Christmas break, the two weeks of Christmas break, and able to go back to school in January. And you were 16 at the time? I was 16 and I turned 17 in December. Okay. So I was I, I was 16 when she was born and turned 17 the end of December. And did the fact that nobody even noticed this whole nine months that you were pregnant um, make you feel like people weren't listening to you as well? I felt like I was invisible, and being invisible what seemed to be the safest way to be in my family. I was, I, I guess in my own way, I was hoping mom would notice that I didn't need any more tampons for nine months, that someone would notice, but no one ever noticed that, that I was pregnant, that my stomach was getting bigger, and I was losing weight and gaining weight at the same time, and I was, I was somewhat overweight, so no... Nobody really noticed that I had, my stomach was growing. So pretty much your your family had no idea. You never went to the doctor, didn't tell people for the entire pregnancy when you were pregnant with me. Right. There was one, there was a couple of girls came up to me in school um, closer towards the end in the 12th grade and said, are you pregnant or is your stomach just big? I said, my stomach's just big. And that was the only time anybody ever even mentioned it. So what happened the night I was born? Well, the night you were, well, I'll start with Wednesday. The You were born on a Friday. Wednesday, I was at school and my water broke. It was a really rainy day that day. And, and so I was wet walking to classes and stuff. So I kind of knew what was happening and sort of didn't. And, and I didn't have anything with me. So I used the like the brown paper towels in the bathroom to put in my panties. And so I went home that, walked home from school that day. I had no idea of the danger that I was putting Pamela in by, by my water breaking and not telling anyone. I got up the next day on Thursday, went to school. I was having some cramps and I went through the day and I walked home. Then on Friday, I, I was going through cramps a little more often during school and I kept saying, please let this pass, please let this pass and let it not be that. And I knew that that she was coming regardless of me wishing it wouldn't. And so as I was coming home from school, my brother picked me up and brought me home and I was so glad because with every step I took, I would have a cramp. So I was home and mom came home from work and she wanted me to go to the grocery store with her. I was hanging on to the buggy, walking in the grocery store, having cramps, and I told Mama. So by cramps, you mean contractions? Contractions, right? yes. Wow. Contractions. Okay. And so by, I told Mama, my stomach was hurting. I need to go home. So we went home, and I ate cake and ice cream for supper, my supper that night. 
and uh, and went on to bed. I told mom, my stomach was hurting real bad. She said, take some aspirin. So I don't know if I did. And so I went on to bed and then they kept getting closer together and I knew what was happening. I got up and told mom again, my stomach is still hurting. She said, take some more aspirin. I said, I already did. So I went and laid back down and then I knew it, they were just so close together and hurting really bad that I had to go ahead and tell her. So about three o'clock in the morning, I went to mama and sit on the side of the bed. I said, mama, uh, I, I need to go to the hospital. I think I'm having a baby. Mom sat up in the bed, shot what? Started touching my stomach. And why didn't you tell me? And screaming out to my brother, and, and he was going hysterical. He started throwing up in the bathroom and, and panicking. And they called my aunt and she had no clue what to do. And my other brother said, that's why she didn't tell you because of the way you're acting now. <laughs> so I went to the hospital. It was Mercy Hospital where there was nuns and stuff there. I went to the hospital in the emergency room and mama took me up there and said, I think she's having a baby. And the guy said, what do you mean you think? And mama said, well, she never told me. And so they took me in and said, yes, the baby's almost here. So I went in and uh, they put me to sleep right at the second she was born. I think I was only under for a few few minutes. And then there she was. And she weighed five pounds, five ounces. And, she, and I, I was so excited. After I was born, my grandmother told my mother that if anyone came in there wanting to take me away or wanting her to sign any papers, that she was not to do that, that if she didn't want me, that my grandmother would take me. And so did you never even think about giving me up or having an abortion? No, it never crossed my mind. And abortions just weren't talked about in common back then. And I didn't know any other girls that were pregnant in school. Uh, if they were, that it was a secret. It, it just wasn't talked about. And mom, I remember my mom saying she got pregnant and her mother sent her away to a home in Tennessee and her mom would not let her come back home unless she gave my brother up mm. and mom refused to give my brother up until her grandmother found out that she was there and come and got my mom and my brother so maybe that's why it stuck with me because mom refused to give uh, my brother up that you know maybe that's where I got no you don't give your baby up so when you looked at me as a baby, did it remind you of the trauma that you had gone up under? No, when I was holding you and the big black eyes looking up at me and you were eating so ferociously, I felt bad. I said, I'm so sorry that I didn't feed you right and take care of you while I was carrying you. My mother chose to keep me. There were choices she could have taken, and I would not be here today. My soul came to this world for a purpose, already in the midst of chaos and heartache and pain. If anyone knows anything about indigo, crystal, and rainbow children, I am very firmly an indigo. I don't remember a lot of my childhood. My mom married a man when she was very young, and my brother was born. I remember a few things. 
My mother's first husband was in the army and for a year we lived in Stuttgart, Germany. I have a memory of taking the elevator down to the playground and playing in what looks like a teepee in my memories. I was preschool at the time, very young. I also remember the love of my grandmother, whom I called Momo, and my uncle Jimmy, whom I called Uncle Bebo. They were constants in my life, even if I wasn't with them all the time. A great deal of my early life, I thought they were the only ones that actually loved me and thought I was worthwhile. They made me feel important. And my mother's second husband was the man that adopted us and gave us his name. He was in the Navy, so we moved a few times with him as well um, until he got out of the Navy and we settled in South Carolina when I was in the third grade. This was a key moment in my life because my elementary school had a church meeting at it and I asked if we could go one Sunday. So my mom didn't want to just send me and not bring the whole family, so we all went. Even as a young child, I was searching for something in my life that was bigger than me. And here in the South, in the early 80s, you could find church. And this just wasn't any church. It was a fundamental Bible church. And while I didn't know it at the time, it was setting the scene for a lot of heartache with my family and through my life. We were looking for someone to make all the pain from the past go away. And sadly, through manipulation and gaslighting, they only made it worse. So without going into a whole lot of detail, because it's not necessary, I just want to say that due to various trauma of my childhood, I don't remember a lot of it. I remember bits and pieces, and someone once told me that my subconscious had to make room for all the knowledge I was gaining and chuck those bad times. But the mark that those experiences made on me does remain to this day. I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel like I belonged. And I tried so hard to belong and to please my parents and my church, God at the time. I felt empty. My home life was volatile and I never knew what it would be like when I got home. It was extremely dysfunctional abusive. I was physically, verbally, and emotionally abused at home. I was told that I was worthless and would never amount to anything. And that still haunts me. When we moved, when I was in the fourth grade, we ended up joining a small independent uh, evangelical church that once I was able to get out, I did recognize it for the cult that it was. There may be some of you listening that knew me back then, that even went to church with me. Why do I call it a cult? Well, why don't we go down a checklist of what to watch out for in a cult? And I will tell you, why I call it a cult. So on a site that I looked up that gave you a lot of ideas of making sure you're not in a cult, this was the first thing that was listed. The group is focused on a living leader to whom members seem to display excessively zealous, unquestioning commitment. I saw this firsthand and it is scary. My parents were extremely protective and because they didn't trust others, they would always let the pastor and his wife babysit. The pastor was such a pompous, narcissistic bastard that he would molest the young girls, including me, with other people in the room sometimes. 
I absolutely knew my parents would never believe me because he was careful. And he was on such a pedestal that even as a child, I knew not to tell anyone. I didn't know how to handle it. So I ended up repressing it and remembering it in my mid-twenties, right before I got married. We had gotten out of the church by then, which is a story in and of itself. But my parents and myself and my fiancé went and confronted him at his home. We asked his wife to be there. I accused him of molesting me, as well as encouraging my father to physically abuse me. He only admitted to the molestation. When we were leaving, my mom hugged him and thanked him for admitting to what he'd done to me. I was so angry and confused back then as to why she would hug someone who had abused me. This man who had created so many hardships in my life. I didn't understand her story at the time, but now I understand 20 some years later. Now I know that she was thankful that he had admitted it so that no one would ever doubt my story or call me a liar like they called her. She hadn't had a voice. She had not been heard. She'd been invisible through her whole life. And in a sense, she was overwhelmed with gratitude that this was different for me. It took me years to forgive and understand why she did that. But now that she has healed from her own wounds, she tells me her response would have been far different. I still hold that pastor accountable for his part in brainwashing my father that he needed to beat the sin out of us, that by whipping us, he was saving our souls from hell. Let's keep going. So another item in the list um, to tell if you're in a cult is that the group is preoccupied with bringing in new members. This was evangelical. Evangelism in itself means that you are converting the unbelievers. It's all about salvation. It's all, all about trying to shove everyone they meet into their little box that's shaped like them that no one really can fit in. So it was preoccupied with bringing in new members. The next one up is that the group is preoccupied with making money. So when I read this, I got to thinking about tithing because, I mean, I was young, fourth grade and onwards, and I knew that I was supposed to be tithing. Learning to tithe was a constant topic of preaching. We were told so many times to give 10% that we could give nothing less, and it had to come out of pre-tax money. My dad made decent money, and I believe to this day that they controlled him as much as they did because his pre-tax 10% was paying a lot of the bills of that church. So the next one is questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. My mother has lots of stories about this one. Women especially were not to be heard, did not have a voice, especially in public. So I'm gonna let my mom tell a story about this. So for a long time, I wasn't sure that there, people in the church knew what our home life 
um, was about. But fairly recently, you told me a story about when you went to a ladies' meeting um, back when I was a child. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what happened? Yes, it was a ladies' group, and the pastor was going to join us to teach us about submission. I hated that word of course. But anyway, he was teaching us about submission and how we just submit to the husband and the leaders and the elders. And everybody was talking and asking questions. And I was, that was when I was really starting to find my hell no. And so I raised my hand and asked, how much more submissive do you want me to be? I'm letting them beat my kids. And the room fell silent. And he got mad. And he said, you should not be talking about your husband with him not here to defend himself. And so I just got quiet and I got up and went outside. So once you'd said that in the ladies' meeting, did any of the ladies or anyone ever come to you and talk to you about what was happening, try to help you? No, no one ever approached me about that. Uh, the pastor came in and told me I was wrong for airing my dirty laundry in front of uh, the, the ladies' meetings and stuff. And I apologized to the group for uh, bringing that up and knowing that it was inappropriate. The, inappropriate for me to be talking about that in front of them, that that was not the time or the place to talk about that. But I never went back to another lady's meeting after that. And I, that was when I decided I was leaving the church. How old was I when that happened? Teenager? Uh, early teens, pre-teens. No one ever came and talked to me either. I had no clue that the women even knew what was going on in the house. I think the problem was that the pastor was brainwashing all the men that it was okay to beat your kids, that the black and blue marks of healing. And I found out later on that it was happening in a lot of other families too. Let's continue looking at this list that um, shows what a cult would be. So the next thing on the list is that the leadership dictates sometimes in great detail how members should think, act, and feel. For example, members must get permission from leaders to date, change jobs, get married. Leaders may prescribe what types of clothes to wear, where to live, how to discipline children, and so forth. Holy shit, y'all. We were even sent to what was called the Bill Gothard Institute to be told how to live, how to dress, how to date, how to get married, how to raise and discipline our children, and so forth. I remember one time my parents were going to move. They even had a for sale sign in the yard. The pastor came over and told them it was not God's will, and they took it up. I think it was more, and I truly believe this to this day, that the pastor saw dollar bills moving away, but eh, who knows? We were told what we could watch on TV, which was not a whole lot of things, what toys we could play with. The popular Cabbage Patch doll at the time was considered satanic and evil. What we could listen to, 
Anything with a rock beat was bad, even Christian music. What we could wear, that women could not cut their hair. One time when I was a teenager, one of the leaders of the church came over. I was going to a Christian concert, uh, Michael W. Smith, I believe it was. And he looked me dead in the face and told me that there was no way I was right with Jesus and no way I was having a relationship with God if I was going to that concert. So the next um, checklist item, the group is elitist, claiming a special, exalted status for itself, its leaders and members. Is everyone else is wrong and going to hell, even other Christians, enough? We couldn't even do community events if there were other churches there. It was extremely insular. So next on the list, the group has a polarized us versus them mentality which causes conflict with the wider society. That kind of goes with the last one. We were taught that you cannot trust anyone. Do not get the government involved in anything. They were the enemy. You don't call DSS for abuse. You don't go to counseling for emotional or mental health issues. You don't take antidepressants or any other type of medications for mental illness because mental illness showed that you weren't walking with the Lord. So if you just prayed hard enough, you wouldn't need it, or if you continue to need it, it showed that there was sin in your life that you weren't dealing with. My mother was told that you do not go to secular people for anything. You only repent and then turn to God. So next on the list, the group's leader is not accountable to any authorities, as are, for example, military commanders and ministers, priests, monks, rabbis of mainstream denominations, all those are accountable to authority. But in a cult, they are not accountable. This was why our pastor got away with so much evil during this time. He was so likable and charismatic. And as it was an independent church, he was the ultimate and almighty last word in everything. And the men that were around him had power as well. They supported him. When I confronted him about what he'd done to me, I told him that I wouldn't pursue anything else regarding it as long as he was never a pastor or a teacher of young people again. I still had that brainwashing, um, and my parents did too, that you don't confront an elder in the church without at least five witnesses, which we got. We were taught the elders of the church were the final authority over Christians and not to get the outside secular world for answers. So even when he started attending another church and teaching there, and I called him out and went before that church's elders. Since I was still trying to be nice about it, do the Christian thing, I told them what kind of man he was, and they still let a child molester teach. That was the last straw for me. That resulted in me pressing charges, which resulted in an investigation and finding out just how many children and women he'd abused during his time as pastor. He is today on the National Sex Offender Registry. Sadly, not one other person wanted to come forward and press charges for their own reasons, including um, being told that he'd already ruined their life and he'd already done enough and they didn't want to have any more of that in their life. So I understand, I do. I wish that they had come forward because maybe more would have happened to him, but I understand. Because when I did this, 
I became known in my small community as the person that ruined a good man and black in the name of Jesus. Yep, you heard that right. I was a bad guy. I was told I should have just let it stay in the past. But my concern for future children that he might abuse overruled any of the brainwashing about not going to the police and any shame people attempted to put on me. I did not give a damn at that time. My family, thankfully, was 100% behind me all the way. We were in the process. I was further along than them, but we were in the process of getting out of all of that. Our whole family was then ostracized from the church. Thank you, sweet Jesus. Sunday's Child from the book Tyranny of Hope by Pamela Borowski. I am a cookie cutter Christian. I wear my faith on my chest, but beneath the fabric that taunts the Savior beats a heart anything but blessed. My smile is painted across me. God always wants joy on our face. It matters not what's inside you. There's no defeat in the holy race. I go to church when the doors open and I know all the right words to say. I can cut someone right down to the quick with what I learned from last Sunday. All my sins are forgiven, yet there are sins I don't know, sins of submission and sins of omission, but all of these sins God foreknows. But our pastor always enlightens us of new no-nos that appear in our world. Seems this week the color is pink, the transgressions of life are unfurled. Or no, I'm in a rainbow. That's gay and Satan speak. Heaven forbid we associate with such the dark, the sickening, the weak. All the toys are after our children. I'll pick it with all my friends. Lord, have mercy on our souls, even Saturday cartoons offend. I'll sing when we all get to heaven and turn away from the bum in my path. Because he smells like old whiskey and he must be under God's wrath. Because any brethren that hurts just has some sin in their life. If only they'd repent, turn a new leaf, they'd no longer have sickness or strife. I am a faithful disciple, a New Testament in my backpack. I'll quote full passages to you. Don't expect me to take feedback. When I eat out at a restaurant, a track is left instead of a tip. I know that my precious Savior will reward me for honest saintship. Look at me, all ye heathens. My life is so good, best repent. I keep all my problems hidden and pray for the day of ascent. Too much self, they say, is a burden. We pray, die to self every day. I am a cookie-cutter Christian. I'll fit in when I cut me away. Next item on the checklist. The group teaches or implies that its supposedly exalted ends justify means that members would have considered unethical before joining the group. I was really too young and I don't remember this happening to myself, but my father has stories that I had no idea was going on until I was an adult. 
My dad was constantly told that the men of the church had to be the faithful follower of the few and the right hand of God. The pastor spent years lying to my mother and lying to my father, telling them both different things, creating a lot of arguments between them. Also, next, the leadership induces guilt feelings in members in order to control them. Yep, check. God won't bless you if you aren't obedient. This was a repeated phrase we were told. But the problem was that the church itself was creating the rules for obedience. Every time things would go wrong or something bad would happen, we would think we were sinning. We would be told we had sin in our life whenever hardships happened. My mom, my dad, and I worked so hard to be as obedient and good of a Christian as we could, but it never seemed to work. We still had hardships and difficulty in our life, and we were convinced that if we could just obey these rules they had set, that we wouldn't have these hardships and difficulty. And that's just crazy. So next, members' subservience to the group causes them to cut ties with family and friends and to give up personal goals and activities that were of interest before joining the group. Yep, check again. Breaking up families because they weren't living the right life the church wanted um, and all your goals had to be in line with the church was common. I remember having to burn my Elvis records my grandma had given me and even burn toys and things because they were said to be evil. Like I mentioned about the Cabbage Patch Kid, they had this whole thing about that and how it had this evil symbol on it and things like that. And when my mom finally had enough and wanted to leave, my father was told, let the unbeliever depart and don't worry about the kids. We'll help you tell them how bad of a mother she was and you will get the kids. And that was my mom's worst fear, losing her kids. So that was able to control her and kept her from leaving. She knew that they would do something and she would lose her kids. So she stayed there. And that is truly cult behavior. So the very last checklist item is that members are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. Isolation was their number one tool to control the families in the church. We were an extended family, and that was part of the appeal and what kept us together. Most, if not all, were from broken families. So having family was a major appeal. All we had were each other. I wasn't allowed to go and do a lot of things with others growing up. I did go to public school, but a lot of the people in my um, church were homeschooled. Um, in order to keep us under control and sheltered, the fellowship of each other was of number one importance. We were encouraged to go to only certain colleges. Um, I ended up going to Columbia International University. And oddly enough, that is where I started learning about the crap that they were teaching us. In the classes that I took at CIU, I was taught how to interpret the Bible, um, and I was taught other views and my eyes were open to the world. But that is another story as well. But in this church, control had to be maintained. And you can only control people when they are with people of the same beliefs.
the church was a cult. I stand firm to that. And I've been in cult recovery groups. I've read cult recovery books. And I've talked to countless people like me who are involved in religious cults of the same ilk. It was a controlling environment led by powerful men with a charismatically charming leader at the top. If any of these checklist items uh, are something that you realize you are involved in now, because you don't have to be in Christianity to find a cult. You can find a cult everywhere in everything. If you recognize those and you're listening to this, I think it's time to really take a hard look at where you are. You know, not everybody in that church I grew up in was evil, but it was led by evil men who took advantage of many dysfunctional families and people who just wanted to live a spiritual life in some way and have a family around them, to have an extended family. It attracted a lot of men because it gave them power. It attracted a lot of women because they were broken. The visitors that came that were not as dysfunctional and broken didn't stick around for very long or ended up being ostracized at some point for rejecting God's infallible word as they saw it. My mom said today uh, when we were talking about this and making some recordings that a pastor should lead a flock, not herd them like cattle. My dad wanted to give a final thought, so here that is. Uh, growing up the way I did, I wasn't very well trained to be a parent, much less a good one. Uh, and so there were some hard times in our family growing up. But I'm really proud that Pam uh, went through all that and still came out very good, no matter what she's ever tried, whether it was uh, missionary work, CF work, uh, be in a museum, uh, docent or uh, director of the museum, docent uh, group, and now working with her uh, spiritual uh, gifts. She's always made me proud and done a very great job. And I have no problems at all with anything that she does. She's always looking to help and to do what's right. And I have the utmost confidence in her, and I love her very much. I love you too, Daddy. Thank you. Mama, did you ever think that you and I would be having a pagan podcast about Southern witches? Well, (laughs) not really. (laughs) But with you, anything's possible. I sure do appreciate y'all listening to Bell Book and Candle. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bell Book Candle SC. I have a Patreon, so if you'd like to support me there as a patron, it starts at a dollar a month. And you can find me there at Bell Book Candle. It's attached to a really great Discord chat, so if you're into Discord and you want to join me on my Bell Book and Candle Discord, I'd love to have you there. Y'all be blessed. Hey y'all, my daddy wrote me a theme song. If you want to hear the entire song, then just um, wait for the sound of the goat.
and it'll come up right after that. She should have studied witchcraft, should have learned to ride a dream. So me and my black cat could fly through the skies underneath the moon. Should have studied witchcraft, should have gazed in a crystal ball, trying hard to see the past, to see the present and the future yonder. Should have studied witchcraft, should have learned to cast those spells, while waving my glowing staff, making charms for the southern bells. Should have studied witchcraft, should have worn my robe of white, or trying really hard. To set the fires up obtain a life. Should have studied witchcraft, should have learned the Celtic spread. Walked with my major staff, seeking loved ones lost or dead. Should have studied witchcraft, should have learned to read the runes, while traveling the ancient path and listening to the fairy tunes. Oh, I should have studied witchcraft. 